Hi everyone and welcome back to the Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm delighted to say that our guest this week is none other than Robert Saunders who's reader in, is it modern British politics? Modern British history. Modern British history. Oh God, sorry, because I was going to talk to you about history, so that's a rookie error. Reader in modern British history at Queen Mary University of London. Robert, welcome and apologies for getting it wrong right at the start. That's great to be with you. We've got, we've got an awful lot to talk about, actually. I mean, I think your work is utterly fascinating, and I'm sure most of our listeners have read your stuff, either your academic stuff or the things you write in places like the New Statesman. But we're talking the day after the Starmer speech at Labour conference. So I want to start off with Labour, if I may. And, you know, you've written a lot about the Labour Party. Can you just, what do you think Labour can learn from its recent past? I mean, one of the interesting things about the Starmer speech was there were loads of references to Labour's past in it, coded or less coded. But what, what lessons are there for the leadership, do you think, in terms of how the party has fared in recent years? Well, I think it has to be realistic about the scale of its problems, that the Labour Party is not a stranger to losing general elections. Um, if you think about the 20th century, I think it won a comfortable working majority three times. Only six of its leaders have ever been prime minister and two of them have effectively been excommunicated from the party subsequently. So it's always been a party, actually, that has struggled to build the kind of electoral coalition that allows it to win and then retain power. It has always been a party that has been very bitterly divided and has struggled with infighting, I think, to a much greater extent than the, than the Conservative Party. So none of these things are particularly new, so I think it can look back to previous governments to think, what was it that they did that allowed it that allowed them to overcome these problems? How did they manage internal discontent without imposing some kind of spurious unity? And how did they build the kind of national coalition that would bring them into office? I mean, one of the things you've written is a wonderful turn of phrase is you've, you've said that the, the party tends to be too willing to inhale its own myth. What, what did you mean by that? I think partly because of its name, the Labour Party tends to start from the assumption that it, it speaks for the people that it speaks for the great majority of working people in this country, that it loves slogans like for the many, not the few, the idea that it stands for the 99%. The problem is that that is very difficult to reconcile with its electoral record. So in order to bring these two into some kind of synchronicity, it has to come up with extraordinary explanations for why it loses elections. And it must be either because of some noxious force that has corrupted the electoral process, or some kind of internal betrayal, or something like the Zinoviev letter, or the bankers ramp, or the IMF crisis, or the Falklands war. It generates a story by which it would have won every election if some extraordinary thing hadn't intervened to stop it. And I think it'd be wiser actually to start from a recognition that it finds it really hard to win elections, that its base electoral coalition is not large enough to mm. give it political power. And only under extraordinary conditions has it succeeded in moving beyond that. Do you think there's an element to which the party has, a bit, and the left in general maybe, has a bit of a virtue problem? That one of the things that it's too easy to assume is, you know, the electorate just isn't as sort of pure as we are. And this sort of explains in part the tendency to use the sort of Angela Rayner type language about political opponents. Yes, and I think in some ways the strengths and the weaknesses of the Labour Party actually come from the same source. Now, on one level, a lot of what's good about Labour comes from the fact that its members tend to be very ideologically committed, mm. that they are people who really desperately want to create a better world, who see themselves as fighting for the poorest in society, as trying to overturn injustice. And that gives the Labour Party a lot of its positive energy, but it also very easily turns into a kind of dark energy in which 
that kind of curdles into a hatred of anything that stands in your way. And mm. I think it was very striking, actually, some of the TV footage yesterday of some of the people who were heckling. And there is, of course, an entirely serious left-wing critique of Starmer. But you looked at the faces of some of those heckling, and they were distorted with hatred. And that's always been a danger for the Labour Party, that that sense of its own righteousness actually turns into a kind of crusading zeal against the damned and the fallen, whether they are Tories or Blairites or some other kind of heretic. Yeah, I remember someone, I can't remember, it was an MP, a Tory MP once said to me that uh, the fundamental difference between Labour and Tories is that the Tories go out seeking converts and Labour go out seeking traitors. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of truth in that. You, you've once said that the ability to marry good storytelling with good policymaking is the greatest challenge of opposition. So how well do you think Starmer accomplished that yesterday in his speech? Because he certainly tried to do that. I think he got halfway there. I think what he was trying to do in the speech was really to tell a story about himself and to talk about where he came from and to knit together his working class background, his career as a public prosecutor, his record of delivery, and to use that to tell a story about the kind of values that he would bring to government and the kind of, you might call it, pragmatic patriotism that would define his politics. I think what wasn't so successful was the attempt to tell a story about the kind of country that he wants to govern and how he sees himself as getting there. That what is what is the vision that binds together Labour policy? And it's interesting, if you look back over the past week, actually Labour has announced quite a lot of fairly radical policy. There was an enormous you know, spending commitment to green investment, for example, I think £28 billion a year. There mm. were some quite radical policies on things like capital gains tax, on removing the charitable status of private schools, on tilting the, the tax system and and, and so on. But there wasn't really a story that knitted these things together. There, was an, there were flickers of it in the sense of what was good about the pandemic in terms of the public's response to it. What are the kind of mm. values that we might want to take on? What was problematic? But if you compare it with Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson is an extremely skilled storyteller. He always links together Brexit, levelling up, global Britain, you know, whatever one might think of these slogans, there is always a story about what the government is doing and how it's now possible because of its Brexit successes. And Labour, I think, is still quite a long way away from that. Do you think, I mean, I, I sometimes do that actually, uh, well, I suppose two questions from that. The first is I rather cynically assume that the politician that needs to stand up and tell his backstory to party conference is the politician who's got a personality problem with the electorate. Do you think that's, that's unduly harsh? I think that's possibly a little bit unfair in that a lot of politicians spend a lot of time telling their story. You know, Sadiq Khan um, never loses an opportunity to talk about his backstory, or indeed yeah. Sajid Javid's. One thing that everyone knew about Margaret Thatcher was that she was the grocer's daughter who had yeah. grown up in Grantham, in, in Grantham, and that meant she was a different kind, kind of conservative. I think if you're still having to do it 18 months into your leadership, even allowing for all of the disruption of COVID, that perhaps does suggest there is a problem in terms of connecting with the public. And do you think that Labour are guilty of underestimating Boris Johnson? That's to say, it's too easy to say the guy's a clown, the guy's a buffoon, the guy's trivial, as Starmer called him yesterday. But actually, what they never seem to grasp is the guy's a bloody good politician. Yes, I, I think there's a I'm conscious of this with myself, actually. I think it is very difficult to understand why people like Boris Johnson if you don't like him yourself. Mm. And I think a lot of people in the Labour Party look at Boris Johnson and think this man is a clown. This is a man of no convictions. This is a serial liar. And all we have to do is just keep telling people that. Mm. And at some point, the message will get through and they'll notice. 
Mm. And yes, I think there is actually quite a lot of evidence that the public know that Boris Johnson has a somewhat dodgy personal history. They know that he is economical of the truth and they don't mind. And mm. therefore, there must be other reasons why it is this man has twice been elected mayor of London in a liberal Labour city, why he has won a referendum in 2016, why he's won the Conservatives' biggest election victory since the 1980s. And I think there probably is a kind of ethical barrier for much of the left to doing the hard work of, of understanding why Johnson is so electorally successful. I think actually much the same can be said of Corbyn in many ways, that same utter incomprehension between those who loved him and those who hated him about how you could possibly be on the other side of that divide. Yes, and, and so that goes back to, to the kind of earlier point you made about, about looking for traitors or heretics. There must always be some kind of dark yeah. reason why Boris Johnson is winning. It must be because of Russian backing, or it must be because of some kind of conspiracy in the papers, or it must be that uh, Corbyn supporters are all, are all fanatics, or that Corbyn's critics are all Tories. And so there's a kind of projection rather than a real attempt to, to interrogate and analyse. Yeah, and I suppose in a way this, this, this is sort of partly responsible for one of the, the sort of curiosities about the Labour Party, which is this sort of apparently quite deep-seated belief that you need an internal confrontation as a precursor to winning. Actually, you know, we need to have a fight with ourselves before we have a fight with the Conservatives. And that, you know, that was very evident this week, I think, at Labour conference that, you know, we'll deal with the enemy inside first. And do you think that's true or do you think that's just something that Labour does because it's what Labour does? I think it's another part of, of Labour's internal myth making that actually for a party that in many respects has, has quite a strong Pacific strand, the language of fighting is, is very deeply woven into Labour's thought. It talks about, it, it, its folk memories are things like standing on the barricades at Cable Street, putting your body on the line in order to turn back the fascists. There's a lot of kind of clenched fists. There's yeah. a lot of the idea of fighting injustice, of smashing oppression. And so the sense that a lot of Labour Party figures historically have had of themselves as warriors, I think does drive them to that idea that you're looking for a battle. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, turning turning to the Conservatives, and we talked about Boris Johnson as a sort of popular politician, but I want to talk a little bit, because the other thing you've you've written on, you've written for us really well about, is what this government is doing to the UK constitution. Is there something specific about the way this government approaches the constitution that is different to previous governments, do you think? I do think that this government is particularly contemptuous of constitutional restraints. The British constitution does vest a lot of power in the executive. It's done so from the early 20th century onwards. But I think given that this government has only been in office since what, the, the summer of, of 2019, it's already built, built up quite a remarkable record of closing down Parliament um, in the prorogation crisis, mm. of legislating to a quite extraordinary degree through the use of emergency legislation and secondary legislation, of looking to restrict the ability of the courts to scrutinise the working of government through judicial review, of carrying major legislation like the Brexit deal through Parliament in a matter of hours, mm. in a way that denies any possibility of scrutiny or accountability. And I think that that is something that Conservatives, as well as people on the left, actually should be concerned about. 
because this is laying down a series of precedents which will not only operate for this government, but will also be used by future governments to which Conservatives might not be quite so attached. And I suppose we need to add to that list their proposals for getting rid of retained EU law and the procedures by which they'll do so. Yes, and the sense that one of the byproducts of Brexit potentially is passing tremendous powers to ministers simply to rewrite British law on extraordinarily important areas of policy without any meaningful parliamentary process at all. And I think I think it's fair to add, perhaps, that I do think there is a particular issue with the leadership of the Conservative Party at the moment in its attitude to the Constitution. But this isn't a crisis that's come out of nowhere. I think Brexit itself was a really difficult constitutional experience for Britain, partly because it created a really unprecedented situation in that the referendum in 2016 required government to carry through Parliament an extraordinarily contentious and controversial project. And it required them to do that in a hung parliament in which government had no overall majority. Now, normally, if you're a prime minister in a hung parliament, you temper your ambitions. You don't try and carry through very difficult, very controversial legislation because you haven't got the numbers for it. But the referendum required that that be done. So it created this gridlock in parliament. And while parliament broadly accepted the principle that Brexit should happen, every specific version of Brexit was less popular than the principle itself. So there was instruction to do something to leave. But there was no mandate for any of the doors through which Britain might actually leave. So it created this two-year political crisis, which tested British institutions to the limits. And I think we're still really dealing with the trauma and the damage of that. And as we saw in the polling, one of the byproducts of that was a decrease in faith in Parliament and in process. I remember, I think it was 2019, the Hansard audit, showing a majority of people in favour of a strong leader who could break the rules. Yes, and I think we saw in 2019 that the idea of driving a JCB for a wall was popular. The idea that you could simply push this aside had a constituency because it was very difficult to see how else this problem was going to be solved. And of course, that isn't an entirely new phenomenon. Parliaments are intrinsically annoying organisations in many respects. Parliaments are places where people with very different opinions from all different sections of the country come together and argue. And historically, parliaments develop in order to constrain power. They are there in order to prevent tyranny. So parliaments are, in a sense, better at stopping governments from acting than they are at enabling action. And if you take that set of institutions and you add that to a scenario in which 52% of the population wants something and 48% of the population doesn't, Mm. then you have a really, really difficult political dynamic at work. Do you think, I mean, as a historian, and when we look back with hindsight on that parliamentary period between 2017 and 2019, it will be as consequential to the historians as it felt to those of us who lived through it at the time? In the broad sweep of British history, where does that stand? Well, it will partly depend, of course, on how that period is narrated. And Mm. as we were discussing earlier, Boris Johnson is a very good storyteller. And at the moment, the dominant story that's told about that period is that Parliament blocked Brexit. Now, in a way, of course, that's a really interesting telling because Boris Johnson voted against Brexit twice. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg voted against Theresa May's Brexit deal three times. But many of the Conservative MPs who were expelled from the party for blocking Brexit had in fact voted for every version of Brexit that ever came before the House of Commons. But the narrative is that Parliament blocked Brexit and Boris Johnson solved the problem. Now, if that remains the dominant narrative, then I think that will have lasting consequences for the place of Parliament in British politics. The question is whether any kind of challenge to that story can sink roots in British culture. If it is the case that the sort of good chap theory of government no longer applies, does that make 
the case for a written constitution stronger? Well, I'm a little bit of a critic of the good chaps theory of government, actually. I, I think that was always a bit of a caricature of how British politics worked. I, I think if we could beam ourselves back into the 19th century, it would not have been a surprise to Victorian MPs that people in government could do terrible things, that right. power could be abused, and that the purpose of constitutional institutions was to constrain that. And to some extent, if we're saying that the good chaps are no longer operating, then that what that means is us, the electorate, or MPs in the House of Commons, why are we not punishing bad behaviour? That is our constitutional function. If we don't want people to suspend Parliament, if we don't want people to be dishonest, if we don't want people to shovel money to their, their friends and donors, then actually we are the good chaps that can stop that from happening. And on the written constitution, do you think there's a stronger case now than there was previously? Well, I think there is a, there is a decent intellectual case for a written constitution. There is a reason why most countries have one. It's that there is a value in having the rules of the game lifted above the control of any temporary parliamentary majority. Hmm. There is a value in having a document that we can all consult and of, of which we all feel common ownership. But I have to say, actually, I think it is, it's a distraction as an issue from all of the problems that we actually confront in politics right now. Because while the written constitution might be a good thing, how we get there is very difficult to see. We are an extremely divided country politically. How on earth are we going to generate a constitution yeah, in yeah. which we all feel ownership and which we all regard to be fair. And if there is anything worse than not having a written constitution, it is having a contested constitution, which a large section of the public is determined to overthrow or rewrite, or it's having a bad constitution that makes it more difficult to change the things that are already problematic about British politics. When yeah. we say we want a written constitution, what we usually mean is we want it to say all the things that we like. But a written constitution might also entrench first past the post. It might entrench ministerial power. It might actually make it more difficult to challenge the abuse of power by the executive. It might limit the power of the courts. So I think mm. a written constitution is a long-term project that might, might be helpful decades down the line. But actually, if our response to every crisis in British politics is to say we should have a written constitution and then go back to what we were doing before, we're not actually doing anything meaningful. To, to tackle the problems in our current political situation. When people talk to me about the need for a written constitution, I tend to ask them in return, who should write this? Exactly. It is a tricky As soon as you get into this, then every powerful interest in the country is going to have a very strong stake in trying to make sure that it says what they want it to. There is a reason why constitutions tend to come out of moments of necessity, like a military defeat or a moment of national independence or, so, or something of that kind. Robert, we're just going to take a very, very short break and we will be back in a few seconds time. Hello, please excuse the intrusion. I'm Paula Surridge, Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and I wanted to encourage you to sign up to our weekly newsletter, which will point you to all the work our experts are doing across a wide range of topics. From free ports to meritocracy and populism, we've got the best social science research available and accessible to everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Still talking to Robert Saunders about history, politics, and virtually anything that comes across my mind, to be honest. But I want to I want to turn on to global Britain, if that's okay. Because amongst the many fascinating things you've said and written is that a feeling of post-colonial colonial melancholia is as evident amongst Remainers as Leavers in the 2016 referendum. Can you just explain what you mean by that? It's not a claim you hear that often. Yes. So a common argument among Remainers about why Brexit happened is that it was an expression of imperial nostalgia, that what Brexiteers really want is to bring the empire back and that they are suffused with something called post-colonial melancholia. 
the idea that Britain has lost its status as a major power and that they want that back again and that they intend to blame the EU for that. I think it is very difficult to find empirical evidence for that. And it seems to me that insofar as the belief that Britain should be a great power, that it should punch above its weight, Mm. that that idea has been at least as powerful among supporters of European membership as among its opponents. If you look at Gordon Brown's book during the 2016 referendum, it's called Leading, Not Leaving. Tony Blair's rhetoric about the EU was about this gives Britain a seat at the top table. David Cameron's pitch for membership of the EU was all about the idea that Britain can lead Europe and use that as a platform for power. So if we believe that this is an important force in public life, this desire that Britain should still cut the same kind of dash today that it did in its imperial past, then it's very unclear to me that that has only affected one half of the population and not the other. And and you're clearly very sceptical about this. You wrote in the New Statesman recently that global Britain, the rhetoric of global Britain has set the UK on a dangerous collision course with reality. Is that because of a, a mismatch between how we see ourselves and the means at our disposal. Yes, global history is fundamentally a story about British history. It tells a story that Britain has always been a kind of buccaneering global power, sending its traders and its exports and and its entrepreneurialism out across the world. And for 40 years after 1973, it hid from that identity. It shrank into a parochial European role, and now it can step back into its natural global identity. Now, it's true that Britain was a global power in the past, but it was partly a global power because it had the largest empire the world has ever seen. It Mm. was the biggest exporter that the world has ever known. I think at its peak, Britain accounted for something like 70% of global exports. Now, if you add China and the USA together today, I think you're you're somewhere in in the 30s. I've always seen global Britain as being more about imperial amnesia than about imperial nostalgia, that it tends to start from the assumption that nothing has changed. If you take seriously the idea that the empire was a major factor in British history, then the end of empire is a real rupture. The end of empire means that you have to pursue different foreign policy options, that Britain has to find a different identity for itself in the world. Whereas what global Britain says is that we are what we always were. It's never about imperial power. It's about privateers, buccaneers, a small island punching above its weight. And in that sense, we are trying to relive a past that was never, in fact, true. We are trying to play a role without the sinews of power that made it possible. I've always thought, I don't know what you think about this, that actually one of the sort of necessary preconditions for countries to fully sort of accept membership of the European Union was to accept the fact that there were real constraints on what you can achieve alone. And that that was always an issue. I mean, even the French seem to have done that more more than the British, which is not a phrase that comes easily to me. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes. And I, I think one of the questions that we didn't ask seriously enough during the referendum and the period after it was, why did Britain join the EU in the first place? If this was so at odds with Britain's historical role, why did we do it? And I think it's the answer to that is that whether it was the right policy or the wrong policy, joining Europe became an answer to a lot of big questions in British mm-hmm. politics about what was Britain's economic role now that it was no longer an industrial superpower, now in fact that it was a de-industrializing power? What was its place in the world now that it no longer had an empire? What was its, how did it maintain its influence in Washington and in other capitals of the world when it couldn't offer the same kind of military or economic power that it had done in the future? And the idea that Britain could pool its sovereignty with other powers, that it could rebuild its, its economy within a much larger single market, 
that it could exert global influence by being a voice within the decision-making processes of the EU Mm. was for every government between 1961 and 2016, the answer to that question. Now, it might have been the wrong answer. That's an entirely legitimate response. But it means that we now need to find new answers. And too often, it seems to me that we don't acknowledge that those dilemmas actually exist. We don't acknowledge that Britain's policy options, previous policy options, had to some extent expired Mm. before the 1970s. And we are going to have to succeed where those governments failed in finding a role for Britain as an independent state outside the European community. That's really interesting. Just to round off, I want to ask, talk briefly about historians and, and history. And I suppose just to start, start off with, you know, what is the contribution that historians can make to public debate? What do historians bring that social scientists don't? Well, I've always been an enthusiast for the idea that history can contribute to public debate. But I I don't think it gives us pat answers. It doesn't give us simple analogies. And it can't tell us whether it is right to leave the EU or whether Scotland should become an independent country or questions like that that are really about your values. What it can do, I think, are perhaps three things. Firstly, it can help us to make more informed decisions on those questions. So as Mm -hmm. I said just now, it can help us to understand why Britain joined the EU and what kind of dilemmas we might face as we leave. Mm -hmm. Or if we're thinking about having a tilt to the Indo-Pacific and security policy, it can help us to understand why we tilted away from there in the first place and what we might need to do differently next time. Then secondly, I think it reminds us that the world that we live in today is not the natural order of things, that the world has been different in the past and it will be radically different again in the future. Mm -hmm. And that can be an optimistic thing, actually, because it can help us to imagine a world that is different to our own. But it can also be a warning that we cannot take for granted that there will be food on the shelves in the supermarkets. We cannot take for granted that we will always have petrol in the pumps, that those things are the result of a set of contingent circumstances which can change. So it can inject a degree of caution into our political decision making. And then thirdly, and I think actually most importantly, it can help us to understand people who think differently to ourselves. Historians spend a lot of time trying to put themselves into the minds of different worlds to understand how people thought or lived their lives differently to us. So to understand why people thought it was okay to buy to buy and own slaves, why they voted for Nazi parties in the 1930s, how they found meaning in previous global pandemics. And in that sense, history is all about trying to think your way into a different mental world. Now, that seems to me almost the single most necessary thing in our politics today. There is a chasm of understanding between leavers and remainers, between Corbynites and anti-Corbynites. And we urgently need to find ways of thinking ourselves into the shoes of people that we disagree with, not necessarily so that we can adopt their views, but so that we can at least understand them and start to have a meaningful conversation. It's about kind of reaching across an imaginative divide. And I would, it's, it's not how history is being used by and large in politics today. But I'd yeah. like to think that that is something that history could contribute to the culture of our politics. I suspect I know your answer to this, which is my final question, which is you think historians should contribute more and be more active in public and political debates? I think some historians should. I don't think it's it's something that all historians should feel obliged to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the study of history should always be driven by contemporary concerns, partly because we never know what is going to be relevant in a few years' time. That there were, I'm sure, all sorts of people in August 2001 who were 
researching the history of jihadist theology, which would have felt like a very niche topic at that moment and suddenly became highly relevant a month later. Um, It's very difficult to predict at what point how people cope with shortages in the shops is going to become a relevant historical topic. And I think historians should always be careful that, that while it's it's right that we should be thinking always about the kind of dialogue between the past and the present and about our own political positioning within that, we're not there just as a kind of ammunition dump that people can kind of pop in and pull out a grenade and fling across the political divide, which is too often how it is actually used. Let's just find a historical analogy, which we can use to say that Brexit is a terrible idea or that global Britain is going to be wonderful. So there needs to be a degree of, of distance But I think that there is something we can contribute to the culture and the forms of discussion of politics. Whatever other historians do, Robert, I very much hope for all our sake that you will keep contributing to public debate because I'm a great fan of your work. Listen, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us today. That's very kind. It's been really fun to chat with you. Thank you. 